then I'm in bed and uh, I wake up and I look and at the foot of my bed is <laughs> Dennis. I thought, oh my God, they're right. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour. But as soon as it started, all strategy just went out the window. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour. I think it sunk in that no matter what, this is going to hurt. Called Brian Bieber. I ate it like a normal chicken wing. Spinar moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota in the late 60s as a university-level painting and drawing instructor. He was a self-described bohemian and a hippie, probably one of Sioux Falls' first. Despite living in a conservative and ostensibly proper community like 1960s Sioux Falls, Mel's social calendar filled quickly, and he soon found himself hobnobbing with the city's elite, a breath of fresh, novel air at otherwise uptight and proper events. And so the next best thing was a hippie artist. I came to town, and I, I had, that's why I know everything about all the gossip in town from those years, is because I was like the man who came to dinner, you know, because nobody, only young, young kids uh, in their teenage years were uh, starting to grow hair long and such, and they weren't wearing rings on every finger either, <laughs> and uh, such. Because <laughs> I even had paisley pants, <laughs> and uh, oh, I had scars that would blow in the wind. Mel didn't plan to stay in Sioux Falls for long. He rented an efficiency apartment in the All Saints District, just south of downtown. But while on a walk through the neighborhood, a particular house caught his eye. I was always intrigued with this house. What what about it did you like? Oh, I just liked the flavor of the house. I just it, it, it speaks to me because I just thought I bet if I knocked on that door, came up the steps, knocked on that door, a little old lady dressed in black would come to the door. Because <laughs> I thought this is the spookiest looking house I've ever well, seen. I've redone it a bit because yeah. I, I painted it to the original colors and mm. such, and it wasn't. And uh, so a, sign, a for sale sign came out, and uh, I thought, hmm, well, I gotta see what that place is really like. I fell in love with it, and I didn't want, I was not going to stay in Sioux Falls. I thought, I don't want to acquire anything more than what I can. I had a Pontiac Grand Prix at the time, and that I can put in the back seat, passenger seat, and the trunk. I don't want to hold anything because I will be out of here. A few weeks later, Mel bought the house. That was 1972. 
It's funny to listen to Mel describe those vagabond minimalist impulses of his youth while sitting in his living room today. After decades of collecting, trading, and curating, Mel's art collection fills every available space in his house. Artwork, high and low, fine, pop, and conceptual, covers every wall and surface. It's the most interesting and least pretentious assortment of art I've ever seen. Reclining on the living room floor is a 70s-era male department store mannequin, wearing only a pair of leggy running shorts and an open bathrobe. Hanging on the wall opposite the mannequin, and displayed just as casually, is an original painting by Oscar Howe. There isn't an inch of space in the house that is not utilized or carefully considered. In less intentional hands, it could easily feel cluttered, but it doesn't. Everything has been meticulously placed, and each room has a theme. Some are very subtle, like a subconscious nudge. Others, like the bedroom, with its antique prints of Kama Sutra illustrations and its portraits of 19th century Japanese prostitutes, are not so subtle. The main floor bathroom is a kind of winking shrine to masculine archetypes. There are antique door hangers on each doorknob. The one on the outside is from an old hotel, calling for immediate maid service. The one hanging on the inside proclaims simply, I heart boys. Dozens of vintage action figures stand at attention on almost every open surface in the bathroom. They circle the bathtub rim. They peer down from atop the medicine cabinet. No matter where you look, you're confronted with cartoonishly idealized and unobtainable representations of the male form. You go into Mel's bathroom to take a pee, and you come out thinking about gender politics and body dysmorphia. A couple of years ago, Mel moved into an apartment down the street so he could take care of an ailing friend. Now that he no longer lives in the house day to day, it feels even more like a series of exhibits and less like a practical living quarters. The only place in the house that didn't feel completely visually overwhelming was the three-season wraparound porch, which is decked out end-to-end -end in a rainbow and flamingo motif. Mel says it reminds him of Tahiti. Anyway, uh, I loved the house, and I thought, well, there has to be a history about this house, because it's one of the old ones in town. And I always like to know what went on in all of this and who was, and so I got her name, called it. And she happened to live in the white fourplex right across by my garage. She was right back here. She was a fun lady. And uh, I said, Susie, I says, this is Mel Spinar. And I said, you don't know me at all, but I'm kind of neighbors to you. I live in the Carr's house. That's what we called it at that time. Uh, oh, she says, Sam and Lee Carr. Uh-huh. And I says, I'd like to have you over and you could uh, tell me a bit about what the inside was like and uh, if you know anything about the house. And so she says, well, yeah, Mel, but she says, I'll come over, but I will not stay after sundown. A week later, Susie did come over for coffee with Mel, well before the sun went down, and told him about her and her husband's time in the house. They lived in it in the early 1940s, before the second floor was converted into a separate one-bedroom apartment. She and her husband both loved the look and the layout of the house, but from the first day she felt uncomfortable in it. She told her husband about hearing strange sounds and about her general sense of being watched. And in traditional ghost story husband fashion, 
he was completely dismissive of her concerns. Susie did her best to ignore her unease. One evening, she hosted a get-together with a group of women from the neighborhood. As they sat in the living room, talking and drinking tea, Susie's baby grand piano, all the way on the other side of the room, began to play on its own. The women took off, boom, out, and out the door. Susie says, my God. Then she says it just kept going, and her husband says, oh, no, 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 that, 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 that can't be anything. Well, then uh, it got to the point that her husband started carrying a pistol with him inside the house because Dennis was roaming. Dennis is Dennis McKinney, the original owner of Mel's house. He built it in 1919 and passed away in his bed after an ongoing but unspecified illness just six years later. Dennis was active in his community. He cared deeply about his family. He built a second home for his son right next to the one Mel lives in now. There's really nothing all that remarkable about Dennis McKinney. He was just a guy. When Mel says that Dennis was roaming, that's exactly what he means. Susie and her husband, presumably no longer such a skeptic if his irrational pistol waving is any indication, no longer just heard strange noises and music in the house. On several occasions, they actually saw the shape of a man, walking from one room to another and then vanishing before their eyes. Susie and her husband moved out into a different, smaller house nearby. Mel wasn't too shaken by Susie's story, reasoning that if, in fact, Dennis was real, and the only mischief he was getting up to was playing some music and wandering the halls, then there wasn't much to be afraid of. Then, not long after Susie left, Mel was lying in bed, about to fall asleep, when he heard a loud crash from the living room, on the other side of his bedroom wall. My God, I'm in my bed, and, uh... Kaboom! I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, I thought something came off the wall above the uh, fireplace and everything must have tumbled down and broke. So I, because I thought, what in the hell fell? Oh, God, I hope not everything's gone. And so I got up and clicked on the lights. Absolutely nothing has been moved. And uh, then, long time after that, then I'm in bed, and uh, I wake up and I look, and at the foot of my bed is <laughs> Dennis. I thought, oh my God, they're right. And he's standing there. But it doesn't scare me at all. And then, poof. And, uh, and that happened a few times. So, and he was always, he was just standing there? Oh, yeah, he's just standing. But I don't feel threatened.
This happened several times to Mel over the years. He would wake up in the night to find a translucent figure standing at the foot of his bed, staring down at him. Mel insists that it doesn't frighten him, that Dennis's presence feels completely benign. I think it's worth noting, though, that when we scheduled this interview, Mel specifically suggested we meet at the house early in the day. After the first time Dennis appeared to him, Mel brought a psychic to the house. She told him that Dennis is here to stay, that he's simply enjoying the home he built before he died, oblivious to the fact that he's now dead. And uh, she says, you could maybe release him. She says, I don't know about that. She says, you'd have to get a priest in, uh, and uh, he could probably tell Dennis it's time to go. Mm -hmm. So I did, but uh, Dennis won't go. Over the years, Mel has always rented out the second-story apartment above his house. While he hasn't seen Dennis himself for quite some time, many of his tenants have. One couple that lived in the apartment just a few years ago routinely watched the hazy figure walk up and down their hall. And more than once, they too woke in the middle of the night to find Dennis at the foot of their bed, staring. Have you ever tried to communicate with Dennis at all? Oh, no, he doesn't. Uh, he just appears. And he, he doesn't, you know, he's just looking. He just looks and then he disappears. And uh, uh, he's a good, he's, he's a good tenant. Doesn't pay rent, but it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, and... I never felt Dennis's presence while I was in Mel's house, but that doesn't really mean much. The house is full of artifacts, each with its own story or a fragment of a story. Mel's house hums with the collected energy of those stories. It's impossible to take it in all at once. Dennis could very well be there, one of hundreds of anecdotes, alive in his way, but lost in the hum. Until after sundown, maybe, when things get a little quieter and the shadows get a little deeper and your eyes begin to adjust to the dark. Don't let them in I am too tired To hold myself carefully And wink when they circle the fact That I'm trapped in this body The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour is produced with simple tools and a pure heart, whenever it seems like a good idea. Special thanks to Mel Spinar for inviting me into his home to share these stories. Living in a haunted house is actually probably one of the least interesting things about Mel. If you want to learn more about him and his storied career as an artist and a teacher, a great place to start is pickfresh.com mel. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour theme is Bad Taste by the Absolute Monarchs. In this episode, you also heard music from Narcostates, Jesse Christian, and Perfume Genius. Narcostates' new album, Wicked Sun, is available at narcostates.com. They perform regularly in the Minneapolis area, and you can follow them on Facebook for regular show updates. If you're in the Sioux Falls area, you can catch Narcostates performing live at Total Drag on November 14th. More information at totaldragrecords.com. Jesse Christian's new album, Fixations, comes out on November 14th and will be available to purchase at his CD release show at Old Schools in Sioux Falls on that same night. Previous episodes of the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour are available via iTunes and Stitcher. 
and at ghostsandhorses.com, where you can also order my collection of short stories, Nickel Plated Gold, and watch the short film My DJ, adapted from one of those stories. This has been the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour, and I've been your host, Brian Bieber. Don't let them in. Then the house, uh, then Dennis dies. Then it gets a little iffy, but uh, all the records show that it was rental. And then Bishop Blair Roberts, the bishop from Calvary Cathedral Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church, when the house was still just one, one unit, this was the bishop's residence. So I wonder if they ever found that, uh, that Dennis was here, because then all of a sudden, uh, the Episcopals get rid of running here. Do you think it made them nervous? Like, do you think I don't know like if religious? he ever knew. I can okay. never find out. Hmm. The Episcopals must not be talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.